Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made And I wish that I could talk to me And tell me I can change Don't be afraid Just walk with your Welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is October 10th, 2017. Today I have, coming all the way from New York City, we have Stephen Slate and Mark Sheeran. Um, These guys have written a new book that's going to be coming out in November. I have a copy, thank you so much for sending it to me, called The Freedom Model and I'm really, really happy to have uh, you folks on. Uh, Mark Sheeran created the St. Jude's Retreat back when he was 19 years old, some 30 years ago. I think that's correct. And Stephen's been around a while. Uh, a lot of people know you. Stephen is um, an expert and works with uh, the St. Jude's Retreat out of the city. He's in New York. So I'm going to bring everybody on right now. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Monica. Steven. Hey, this is Steven. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I'm going to bring Do we have Mark, Mark on the... there too. Yeah, I'm going to I'm bringing and... it right now. There we go. Hi, and welcome to the show. Mark. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. How you doing? Good. I'm I'm happy to be on the show. This is exciting. I'm really happy to have you on. Yes, yes. I have never met you all the years that I've been Speaking to Michelle and Stephen, you were one person I never got to interview or talk to. So it's my pleasure. Yeah, you know, through through the years, everybody says that I'm I'm Oz behind the curtain, and I guess <laughs> to a certain extent, <laughs> to a certain extent, that's true. I, uh, I I I am always busy. You know, that's just the way it is. So yeah, I'm yeah. excited though to, to to be out on the air right now. It's it's good. Well, I'm really glad you are. We needed another book. You know, there's always a need for like the next, the next. I was going to say the next step. You notice how I stopped myself. Um, the next, uh, <laughs> the next path or the next uh, book, right? That that needs. Uh, I remember when the book came out by Jeff Foote, Beyond Addiction, and it was December, and I was like, oh, I really needed this book. Well, it wasn't there. It didn't exist, right? And when Lance yeah. Sodes wrote his. You know his book, The Sober Truth. He didn't really th- think he needed it in to do it, but he was very important. So I think I get the feeling that this book is the same. Why don't we just go right into it? What 
um, made you decide that you needed to write this book? Well, um, this is Mark. I, I think that uh, uh, it's been in the works uh, since I was a boy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can speak from, from my point of view, and then I'll let Steve tell his side. Um, for me, I grew up in treatment. Uh, literally, I was steeped in treatment from birth. Um, I'm the youngest of 12 kids, and uh, virtually wow. all of my family has been involved in AA or treatment. Um, so being the youngest, I, was, I spent most of my youth either at a, at a rehab on, on visitation days or, or was, I can remember being smuggled into a halfway house that my mother worked at um, when I was seven years old, you know, and spent oh a lot God. of weekends at halfway houses. Um, so, you know, cause she had to work and mm-hmm. so, so, I mean, it, it was just something that was a part of my life, uh, which was a very odd way to grow up. It really was. And mm-hmm. I can remember going to school and, and having to make up stories in the morning about, uh, you know, what I did that weekend, because who wants to say I was at a rehab, right? Right, so, right. Uh, and so eventually I had a problem and I fulfilled the prophecy that I was sold since I was a boy that I would be an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I got put in treatment for 18 months and I got out and I almost shot myself. So wow. that wow. At, at what age? What age did that happen? I was, na- I was 19. Oh, my God. I was 19 years old. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, it, for me, uh, it was, uh, that was the beginning was when I, I had a moment of clarity. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think it was anything spiritual or religious, but I had a moment of clarity where I said, I'm going to find a better way. Because right. I knew that the treatment industry was a farce. You know, I saw it from the inside out since I was a kid. So I, I so I think that from that moment till now, um, I've I spent the first 12 years at my retreat. I lived with my guests. I did something that no other researcher has ever done, and that's I spent 12 years asking my guests what they thought they needed, which was a totally different approach. Right. Um, and I tried to prove that AA worked. I spent 12 <laughs> years trying to desperately desperately to try to prove that it worked and I wow. found that it so so it was really a great uh effort and then uh, you know the truth came out and that was none of this worked there was no good side to AA there was no there's no good in teaching people something that isn't true and basing people's lives and recovery on something that isn't true so that's really why this book came about. Um, and I think that Stephen, and this is how I can segue into this to, to let Steve talk, but I needed Steve to help me write what I had learned. Um, um, uh, I know the theory. I know uh, the basics of, of or maybe the foundation of, of what we built. And he knew the research. Um, and so, so go ahead, Steve. You tell the rest. Yes, mm-hmm. so... I arrived at the end of those 12 years, um, and what was being taught at the retreat at that point was very deep in the 12 steps still, and when Mark talks about, you know, making a discovery, uh, you know, what, what did he learn, this, there was this kind of this kernel all along, and it was at the St. Jude Retreat 
they told people, look, you can get over this problem forever, you know, and mm-hmm. you can be happier making a change. And so even as they were steeped in a bunch of this 12-step stuff, they were doing one thing that was radically different from the 12 steps and from most treatment programs, which they tell you you're in for a lifelong struggle and that it's going to be hard and you're going to have to constantly work at it, you know. They had a message when I arrived of, hey, you have a choice. And it really is, you know, using drugs or alcohol the way you're you're doing it now, is, is that making you happy enough? Or do you want to find out if you'd be happier making a change? Mm-hmm. And you strip away all the crap, and that's really all that matters, is figuring out that one thing. So there was a lot of stuff in there, but, like, I honed in on that. I was like, yeah, I'm going to try to be happier. I'm going to see if I can be happier, you know, not running around shooting up heroin and cocaine all day every day. <laughs> and and that's, it's, really, it's really simple, but when you're in the thick of it um, and you're doing, you know, you're operating on a sort of do what I did to get what I got theory, right. you hold on to a lot of things, you know, unnecessarily. And unfortunately, AA never grew beyond that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Mark and uh, Jerry, who they co-founded it, they were just willing to keep questioning and whittling down to what was really there. And, um, and it worked for me, and, and I became fascinated with, with the topic as a result. So, yeah. Wow, that's, that's a lot. Um, you know, I just want to go back a little bit with the history because I find that very intriguing, or maybe we could do another show um, about this history with the 12 children and you going to meetings. Um, about what year were you 19? Uh, that was 1989. Oh, 89. So you're even younger um, than I am. Um, yeah, I remember watching uh, what happened with the treatment industry in like 70, must have been 79 or maybe it was 80 in Hawaii and there was all these people that were in AA and they were all getting really excited because some law had passed and everybody was going to be able to make money as a counselor. I remember oh, yeah. hearing yeah, that. And even, right, even my sponsor who, you know, I really loved her, her and her husband. Um, they didn't have any degrees, but they were like the big cojona, you know, husband and wife AA members that really tried to help a lot of people and probably did. Anyway, I knew what the treatment was, you know, and I was like, what? You guys are getting paid for this shit? I was like, uh, isn't that like kind of against your AA traditions, doesn't it? Like, oh, yeah. But, I mean, they just like started making it up as they went along. And uh, yeah. so you you came along like, you know, nine years later, so they probably have a, did they create the, anyway, we don't have to go stay back in there because I want to talk about this book. But I was like, well, um, but we could have you on, we'll have you guys on again, like once it's um, released and sure. people can buy it. Sure. Um, yeah. I'd like to talk about the very, very beginning of the book, which is the preface and um, that you're going to talk about 
moderation, which I love. And can you talk about, like, why did you put that on the first page, you know? Well, I I, I think that, that I wrote that part because I wanted to make the point that the truth is the truth, and anybody can moderate. But mm-hmm. some people don't want to, of course. But it's the great heresy. It's the great heresy yeah. in the treatment industry to talk about the fact that people have control. And we take it a step further because it's the truth, and that is that people are always in control because there's not two people inside of you. There's just you, mm-hmm. you know. And you're making a choice based on what you believe is the best option for you. So to take away the moderation uh, option is just not the truth. It's not the truth. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is an option, and it's always an option. And, you know, when I used to drink back in the day when I believed in all this treatment rhetoric, I was trapped between abstinence and heavy use, right? Because that's what you're taught. Those are the only two right. options. Right. And it's incredibly damaging. So mm-hmm. I vacillated between those two and eventually almost killed some people drunk driving. You know, and and so well. if somebody had come along and said, you know, Mark, you could probably have just a few beers and enjoy yourself more, I I would have done that. I would have. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't want to go down this path of debauchery and misery, um, mm-hmm. but I thought it was inevitable, and that's what's so outrageous about the treatment industry. They make it sound as if it's inevitable. When the yeah. bulk of people in the world moderate, the vast majority do. So mm-hmm. the facts don't bear out this nonsense that treatment's trying to, to, to feed you. So I wanted to start the book with something that would smack the treatment industry right between the eyes and say, you're, you're, you're full of it, um, and here are the facts. And the entire book is fact after fact of all the research about the populations of people that are successful. What I did and and what what Stephen's done uh, with me is we looked at uh, not only the treatment industry, that's an easy target, but we looked at the millions of people that are successful in life Mm -hmm. and that have gotten over these problems and that go unreported. You know, nobody talks about the guy that just quit. Or the guy right. like myself that, that stopped and then one day said, all this AA stuff is nonsense. I'm going to move on with my life and have a few beers a week. You yeah. know, and, and that's a nice way to live, you know, to be free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I think we start out the book that way to catch the reader's attention and to catch the naysayers. I want them to read the book. I want them to criticize it. I want, I want the hate mail. <laughs> That's when you're yeah, making a difference, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm sure you'll get love mail too. You know, um, <laughs> I'm sure I, I, I think that yeah. the, the main thing is that it's um it's it's here. You know, like you finished it. It was um, how long in the making? How many years? Oh, well, three with Steve and I, and prior to that, the whole time. Really, I've I've been writing from day one. But yeah. I, the, the, this book is a three-year effort between Steve and I. It's, it took us about 3,000 pages to whittle down to 500. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to self-publish it or you have a, a publisher? Uh, we created our own publishing company called BRI Publishing. So we're going oh, to good. do a lot of freedom model books mm-hmm. for various problems. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephen. 
They're very quiet there today. <laughs> Is he still, Are you with still us? there? Is he still with us? I think his cell phone probably whittled out on us. Oh, okay. Wait, hold on. Yeah, his, his phone. Wait, are you there? All right. Can you hear me now? I can. This yeah, is can much better, too. Yeah, that's much better. Okay, good. Yeah, so, your phone sounded super <laughs> weird. Yeah, go ahead. We yeah, I cut out for a minute. Um, I wanted, I missed, I didn't hear everything that Mark said, but the thing about moderation um, and the reason that they say it's impossible is because most, you know, the recovery world is basically carrying on an episode of, like, a scared straight show. You know, have you ever mm-hmm. seen where they bring mm-hmm. kids into prison? Oh, my God, yeah, that's what I hate. Oh, my God, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. That's essentially yeah. what this idea of loss of control is all about. It It's designed to scare people into choosing abstinence. It's fully to scare them into it. Mm-hmm. And when you do something out of fear, out of obligation, what have you, um, you don't like it. You don't enjoy it. And when people enter into abstinence out of fear, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. I use this analogy I heard where um, – you know, if a guy mugs you, catches you in an alleyway with a gun and says, give me your money or your life, mm-hmm. but you're going to give him your money, you know, but you're not going to be happy about it. And, um, you know, you're going to want to get that money back. Uh, and so you can sort of force a decision on somebody. You know, you can scare them enough a sometimes to choose abstinence for a while, to agree to it. Um, but if they haven't worked their way there, it's not what they really want to do. Don't right. expect that choice to last. You know, you're not going to go home after a guy mugs you and send a check every day, right? Like, right. it can only be while he's sitting there actively scaring you. And then this is the thing that gets me, that is really the evidence that this is how, you know, most of the recovery world works. It's people come and they tell me, well, I go to these meetings you know, so that I can remember how bad it will be if I ever have a drink. And and that seems to be entirely entirely their strategy uh, is to stay scared. Mark, didn't you say that was called keeping it green? Is that... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, keeping it green. Yeah, you, you got to keep the fear in the forefront of your mind so you don't forget, because if you forget, my God, you might drink again. You might actually like it, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so what a, we're trying true. to achieve with the freedom model and with putting that out there right away mm-hmm. is to say, let's get away from this scared straight model. You you can drink moderately if you want to. You can use sub, any substance moderately if you really want to. Um, let's figure out what you really want. Try to, like, return the sense of freedom. And people have, you know, they've grown to almost imprison themselves because they sit there, they they hold on to this tr- strategy of scaring themselves for so long. They'll they'll try to not drink by scaring themselves. You know, don't do this. Your wife is going to drive you. You sit there telling yourself all these things, but there's a totally different frame from which you could approach it, uh, which is, will I be happier 
drinking that, you know, and like used to drink, it would be the strongest liquor I could find, and it would mm-hmm. be as much as I could get down really quickly and get trashed. And now I can really enjoy two drinks. Like I find mm-hmm. that far more enjoyable, you know, and, and that's why I don't get, you know, 100 proof <laughs> liquor <laughs> and just get on it, you know, like, because it's, but you have to be open to figuring that out. And if you're basing the whole thing on fear and negativity right. and avoiding disaster, you're not finding your, your happier option in the way we describe it in the book. You know, so the freedom model is all about, hey, you're doing this for happiness. So explore if you'd be happier making a change. It's kind of the essence of what it boils down to. And, and right. it's important to know too that we don't we don't uh, judge if somebody says they want heavy use either. If that makes you happier, by all means, go forward with that option as well. The point is with freedom, you're a free individual to do whatever it is you want to do, and it's important to spend the time to say, do I like this option or not, or is there something that will make me happier? And I think that when you corner people. They never get there, and they die there. They die being frightened, and that's it's it's a crime. It's wrong. So, yeah, yeah. that kind of brings us to a topic that with the opiate use and overuse. Now, uh, I loved the video that you did like a month ago, Stephen. I don't know if you want to talk about what happened in the 70s, but I think because you were an opiate user. You can speak to it, like say I wasn't, right? I was like an alcohol and pot mm. user. But could you sure. just speak to that part about the opiates and that, you know, um, the, the illegal hard drugs when somebody comes, right, um, moderating that or being able to say, oh, well, I'm going to just say this. I want to just say this as my input, right, of being in the rooms for 36 years, and then I want you to, you know, go on that topic. But what I saw was that the heroin addicts, it was like it was always like all or nothing, even though as I left and all these years of interviewing people that heroin users don't like certain things and people who like speed don't like the pot and the people who like the pot didn't like cocaine. Like everybody does not like everything and everything doesn't affect everybody the same, right? So yeah. putting everybody together, sometimes people could just you know, uh, quit using heroin, but they probably could have a beer. And not, like, go up the deep end. So, anyway, could you <laughs> go off on that subject? Yeah, I think, well, uh, I, don't know what, I don't know. What do I want to say about this? I think heroin is a tough thing to use moderately only because of the social condition surrounding it, you know, mm-hmm. where right. – um, you know, if a heroin user is found out, they're they're con- considered to be an, an all-day, everyday user, no matter what, you know. And if you look right. for them, and we, we just really took a bunch of information out of studies on heroin, especially this one by Norman Zinberg, um, there are moderate heroin users out there. They're moderate IV heroin users. You know, mm-hmm. he found like 60 moderate heroin users in uh, the Boston area. Mm-hmm. And 
and studied that for about eight years, did follow-ups and stuff, and um, and half of them were IV users. Well, but he had this real strict criteria and found out that, um, you know, that they could only use a certain number of days per month and this or that and blah, blah, blah. And, was, and they truly were moderate heroin users, but they kept, they keep themselves hidden because uh, because of the stigma well, it's illegal. around here. Yeah, it's illegal yeah. and the stigma, right, right. Yeah. Well, but yeah, even more so than other drugs, you know. So if you go out there looking for moderate heroin users, it's hard to find them. So one way that Zimberg found them is he went to, you know, heavy our, our normal picture of a heroin user, people who were showing up at treatment programs in different places for help or that were getting arrested. And he said, you know, hey, do you know any, like, moderate users, right? And usually a lot of heroin users do. They have some people that pay them to go cop drugs, right? Because mm-hmm. one of their, you know, like, they're they're sort of afraid to be involved in all of that. So they don't go through a heavy heroin user to get the, their drugs. And he found them in that way, you know, very reluctant to come forward and to be researched. And he had to do a lot of coaxing and to, to get to talk to them. Um, anyways, I don't want to go on too long about that, but he found them. They're out there. Um, and the majority of people who ever try heroin don't become heroin addicts, um, it can be done. Um, we're not saying not to recommend it, but we say yeah, in the book. That's a hard one to sell right of, now. <laughs> that's a really sure, hard you know? one, right? You mean and, it's kind yeah, of like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So right now, too, you have this massive problem of the heroin being tainted with fentanyl, you know, which mm-hmm. is the way that the fentanyl acts ends up easier for people to overdose with that. Um, you know, and in fact, most of what is called the opiate overdose, heroin or otherwise, it's something like in 84% of the cases, they're mixing it with a benzodiazepine. Um, but certainly what's out there on the market right now, you never know what you're going to get. It's very dangerous. But the reason we talk about it in the book is to take on the idea of addictiveness, Right. Because right. heroin sort of stands there as, like, the model of addiction. And it's supposedly the super addictive drug that nobody can use moderately, but people do. And, and once you know that, you have to say, because you'll... Oh. Oh. I just lost you. Or, or crack, they're a little bit less addictive. Pot is less addictive, ecstasy, then you have, you know, alcohol, you know, and it's just, it's nonsense. Um, There's no such thing as an addictive quality of a drug, although some drugs do produce, you know, physical withdrawal symptoms. But but as far as, you know, making you continue to use them, that's not a thing. We use them because of um, what we like about them. And this lore that drugs are addictive, it sucks people in. It's like a social contagion. Do you know what a social contagion mm-hmm. is? Have you ever heard that? Concept? I have heard it. Yeah, I have heard of that, but I don't really know what it means at the moment. 
Well, you know, it's like there's a ton of evidence for it, although people don't know how it works, but you'll find all of a sudden in one community, one kid commits suicide, and then over the next few months, five more, you know, Mm. by the Mm. same method. And, you know, it's it's almost like a contagion, right? But it's like, it's kind of like the idea with people who look into this say that all the things that we try to do to address the social contagion actually make it worse, right? So then one kid kills himself and everybody comes out, this is so awful, we have to fight suicide, there's so much pressure in school. Okay, kids, make sure you're not feeling too pressured because you might kill yourself, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, like nobody said that to us when we were little. I mean, young, that's like... You know, though, the other component, um, I should say. You get what I'm saying, though, right? Yeah. Well, I I do, but I do think that from the investigation that I have just sort of uh, begun with a sizzle reel that uh, I've made with another co-producer, is that the whole wheel of sober living, home, fraudulent rehab, body brokering, um, has a piece in the deaths. It is not just the fentanyl on the street, and it's not being oh, talked sure. about, of course. Look at Mark I, has I, dealt I, with I, a lot of those places. Actually. Yeah, I, I've I've been saying for 30 years that treatment doesn't cure people; it makes addicts. You know, mm-hmm. and and treatment doesn't work. I mean, I did a public, uh, you know, service announcement you know, in 1996 saying treatment doesn't work when New York State was saying treatment works. And we went directly against them. It doesn't work. If you constantly barrage people with this idea that drugs have addictiveness, the the idea behind that is that drugs change the content of your thoughts and your motivations, which is not true. It can't. Mm-hmm. It's a It's a lifeless substance. It doesn't change your mind. I don't mm-hmm. care if it changes your brain. It doesn't change your mind, which is a different thing. So, so there's this idea, this folklore, that drugs have this magical power to change the content in your, yeah. of your thoughts yeah. and your motivation. And it doesn't. It just – whatever you believe about the drug is going to come true. So, and especially if you're motivated because you like the effect it has on you. So what we have is this entire generation of kids that are now um, learning – from grade school, my kids went through this, and um, this education about being susceptible mm-hmm. to addiction. Well, right? addiction personality. I mean, they were telling yeah, yeah, the, yeah. if you, there's no such thing as an addictive personality. I mean, that's horseshit. That's, that's what in the 80s they did where Tina Dupre joined AA from foster care. I mean, they dragged her from foster care, and she became the post-child for Alcoholics Anonymous and then got on an NPR a year and a half or two years ago to say that she realizes that she was never alcoholic and could drink, but foster care, and people told her she had what they call an alcoholic, you could have it by your your attitude, rebellious people, right? Yes. I mean, that's right. nuts. But this is serious brainwashing or a spiritual malady. What the fuck is that? There's no such thing as right. this. Like on top of what you're saying, Mark, you have the other crazy stuff like telling young people they're broken for life. They're never going to get better. They must always come back here and sit with these fuckheads in AA meetings. Well, look at, look at Monica, that's what happened to me was uh-huh. I was put in this IOP program for a year and, and I wouldn't buckle. 
I just wouldn't mm-hmm. buckle. I just said, this is crazy. You've got to explain this to me. Give me some logic that makes sense. If I have a disease and I'm 19 years old, um, explain how my drinking or my lack thereof is like leukemia. Just explain it, and, and I'll right. believe it. And, they could, of course, they couldn't answer that, and so no, they added no, another they 30 can. days to my sentence. You know, and so they just added added another month to my sentence, and and so eventually, I I had to either believe it, or 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 just succumb to it, and and that's that's what I did. I and when that happened, a part of me died, and that's when I became suicidal. That's when I said, I I guess I am broken. I can't trust my own thoughts. My own yeah, logic right. no longer makes sense. And that's that's a that's a that's a, a deep. Problem. Now we have an entire generation of kids that are barraged with, you are susceptible. If you're mm-hmm. bullied, you'll, you'll shoot up the school. If you're, if you, you know, when I grew up, they said sticks and stones might break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And now they say words are violence. No, they're not. There's a difference between somebody making fun of you and somebody punching you in the face. You know, right. and there's a big difference between uh, going out and partying and having a good time or not and being hopelessly addicted by right. a substance that is lifeless, that in reality is lifeless. You know, heroin doesn't jump into your body and change your thoughts. So, so we have this weird way of dealing in our culture with, with drugs and our vision of them and their powers. And mm-hmm. what, we have, what AA did, and it was amazing, it took a long time for them to succeed at this, is they took the power out of the human body or the human spirit, the free will that we have, and they put it into the drug, which is a bizarre, strange, and horribly damaging thing to do. So right. you take free will, and you, right. you take it out of the person. You say you're powerless over this substance, mm-hmm. and then you say the drug is cunning, baffling, and powerful. I mean, I went to 3,000 AA meetings. I know AA. I, I, I was at district level. I did it all, and none of it made sense. None of it. Well, do you, Logically, how do you feel about your how do you feel about your parents? Well, my mom has passed on, but she uh it, it's funny. Um we never talked about it. They they ignored what I did for a living and uh my father was never involved, so he he and I still talk, but me and my mom never really talked about it. I I knew she was a part of that culture. I wasn't going to throw it in her face. She was a diehard member to the day she died. Um so that's just that was her past, you know. That's what made her comfortable to be isolated and insulated from having wow. to make choices, you know. When did she die? And I think uh, she died last year. Um, oh, my goodness. But, yeah, but, but you know, there's, there's a whole culture in AA of people that want to be led, and that's okay. It really is. It, it is what – now, there's a whole culture within AA that don't want to be led but are forced to. And that yeah, I don't okay. think it's okay, though. I don't. I disagree with that. I don't think it's okay that they want to be. I think brainwashing is a bad thing, and even if oh, you want to be led, maybe be led by um, this book, or be led by Smart Recovery, or by uh, Women for Sobriety, or just talk to a one-on-one therapist who was trained out of New York, or talk to Stephen. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's yeah. okay. Yeah. And that's why well, you know I, you're you're passionate, but I'm really passionate that I think they need to go away and get very very small. Well, I think they're going to. I think they're going to. I think the freedom model is so well researched and so unequivocal in its message that you're autonomous. You have your own entity. 
that nobody can take away. You have right. free will and you have the positive drive principle. Those three qualities of the human spirit, of the human psyche, mm-hmm. you're born with them. And, and it's unequivocal, it's self-evident, and there's no way around it. And that pretty much gets rid of the AA model. Because with those three things that you're born with, you don't need anybody to, to tell you how to live your life. You just live it, and you can be free. You can do whatever it is you want, and substances have no power over you. And that's freeing. Right, right. Folks, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Stephen Slate and Mark Sharon from St. Jude's Retreat, and they have written a book called The Freedom Model, which is coming out in November, which is a, a new take on um, how to deal with substance use issues. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. It's really important time that something happens, you know, that we have a change in this because I see a millennials being bombarded in a way that even um, me as a baby boomer, you know, they came to my grade school. And I got to yeah. say that I was kind of glad I was raised Catholic because as I was unraveling in AA, Mark, you know, I mean, Stephen knows my story probably better than you, but I was in it for like 36 years, about 10 years that I kind of really pulled away when I had children. But um, there was this period, like uh, maybe a couple years before it really started to unravel, where I started noticing and I was like, wait a second, like even in the Catholic Church, um, I'm given free will. And in the Catholic Church, you're allowed to freaking pray for whatever you want. Like if I want to pray for my son to get a job or I want Stephen to become, you know, successful in you with your book. Like you're allowed to – that's the Catholic Church even said. So I started sitting in meetings going, you know, guys, uh, that's – no, 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 God's will. God's will this, God's will that. So what if you're a Catholic in AA? Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I grew up Catholic. I get you. I get you. Yep. I've, I've heard that from a lot of people too, Monica, uh, that even very religious people are offended by all of the spirituality in AA because it, 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 a lot of it is going against their, their concept of God. It's really strange. It's offensive mm-hmm. to atheists and, it's, uh, and agnostics and believers. Or the part about making that. up who God is, right? I mean, I think that one yeah. is probably people who have strong faiths in Jesus are like, why well, you can't make up who God is, right? Or even <laughs> yeah, a right. Muslim or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, right? <laughs> yeah they, um, tr- they trivialize something that is intensely personal to the religious, and, and it is offensive. And it's Look at we all we all know it's a cult, right? I mean, right. AA is a cult. Yeah. That's it's designed. It's a, it, their very symbol is is a pyramid. It's a pyramid scheme, you know. It's <laughs> the, the, the the whole the whole model the whole model is designed to get more members to put the dollar in the basket. That's what this is all about. And that was and Bill Wilson was very explicit about that. I, I'm amazed that people don't read the history and just read what the guy said. He wanted to be a cult leader. He said, I want to be a number one man. I want to die a millionaire, which he did. Really? And so, yeah, and and that's all in AA-approved conference literature. You can read oh, about this stuff. No, so I read enough. I, I I think if, you know, I had to go see that Bill Wilson documentary when I was making my film, and I went over to an old, you know, artsy theater in Westwood, and oh my God, I had to go get some more popcorn. It was like, it was like you know, somebody scratching uh, a blackboard, you know what I mean? Like it was so hard to watch it. Even Yo-Yo Ma was playing his cello, you know, under it. And I was like, get out of here. <laughs> it was really hard. 
But you know, I think that you know, it's we we are laughing about it being a cult, and and I do believe it is has many markers for a cult. Then why get the hell out of the FAA? Why is it involved in the Board of Nursing, and why is it involved in the American Medical Association, and who is the ASAM? Like the fact that pilots and nurses and doctors and you know criminals are treated better than they are. And some of these guys never get into trouble. And this is the part that we have to, we need big media. Like you need like a book tour and be on Sanjay Gupta and the doctors. You know, like this shit has to stop. Yeah, well, it does. It does. And and I, look at, I, I think that, uh, I think there's a whole massive amount of people that when they read the Freedom Model, they're going to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now, how do I know that? For the last, for the last uh, three months, we've been sending pre-published drafts of this, and we've been teaching it at our retreats as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the reception, what people are saying, they're astounded, but virtually everybody that's read it has said, this is the only thing I've read on this topic that makes any sense. And these are people in a lot of cases that haven't gone to treatment that are just influenced by what we call the recovery society that we live in now. So, so even, even John, John Smith, the local guy who really doesn't know much about rehab knows there's something drastically screwed up about all this. And then you have the guy who's been to 20 rehabs and he's so steeped in treatment, he's dying to find another message. So he believes when he reads the Freedom Model, that he can finally move past this. So we're finding that virtually everybody, except the professionals, we'll see how they react to it. I'm, I'm, you know, we'll see. We'll see. You know, are they willing? Well, but you, did you know that? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, but you know, Bill Wilson. They, when I heard this, I was kind of shocked. This is when when I was doing the research for the movie. He sent. Maybe you should replicate what he did. <laughs> he sent like um. Um, cards, postcards to every doctor, like to 500,000, I don't know, it was a really big yeah. number, postcards yeah. that the, yeah. um, it was available uh, to doctors. And I think if you got it to doctors, uh, maybe the younger ones first, you know, the, the older ones that are brainwashed, let's forget it, maybe that generation is going to die off anyway. I'm, I'm, not, I'm kidding, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> and then therapists. Right. Oh, my God, we have to get to therapists. So many don't even know what they say. Oh, you have to be sober before I can work with you to deal with your trauma. And off they send them to fucking Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I know. Yeah. I know. You know, Monica, I, know. Um, I think that, that that is a good idea for us to get the book in front of doctors. And but mm-hmm. I just want to say that over the years, I've had yeah. a lot of people referred to us by doctors. There have been a really? bunch of doctors that have gotten our, their hands on our older books. Um, which I, I feel this new one is so much better. It's like a million times better. But but there's been a ton of doctors that have referred people again and again and again to us. So they, oh, yeah. there's a lot more than will say it who are out there that that know that the way things are being done now doesn't work. And so yeah, it is just a matter of us making them aware of our solution. You know, and and I do hope that AA pretty much goes away. I mean, I don't want to rob it of anybody who really loves it, but I think what you're saying, this whole situation about people being forced into it at mm-hmm. every turn yeah. is mm-hmm. horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. And so I think the work that you're doing is making a massive difference 
on opening people's eyes. The one thing that's happened over the years is when I went to the retreat in 2002, most everybody there had been to other rehabs. And now we're getting, I don't know, Mark can probably tell you the percentage, but a ton more that have never been to any other kind of program, and they immediately sought out something different. They knew yeah. that they had to find something other than a 12 steps. Uh, yeah. We're running out of yeah, time. We have about 40 seconds. We have a minute left. Can you guys wrap it up? We'll have you on again in like a month when your when your book. Oh, gets, we have uh, one minute. Are we going yeah. to eight or no? No, we had we okay. do 45. I had put it in the wrong. I oh, pushed the sorry. wrong button by mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't. Oh, right. I can't. I don't know how it works. The man behind the curtain, though. <laughs> well, people should go look up our our uh, Facebook page, The Freedom Model. Um, I don't know what the exact address of it is, but our, the book is coming out in November, and it's going to be affordably priced for everyone. Um, and then if people want extra services, you know, they can get them at our retreat or whatever. But we really want to, everybody to just be helped by the book. I, I found it. The Freedom Model. Okay, I see it. Great. That's wonderful that you did that. On both. I'll put it on my pages, Okay. Yeah. All right, fantastic. And we'll have a website up soon, and, and uh, uh, it should be published first week or second week of November. Okay. Well, if you don't hear from me, I'll put it in my calendar, but you can, can touch you know, base with me, Stephen, and then we'll have you on again. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Thank you so Thank much. You for Thank you for writing this book and doing all the work you've been doing all these years. And uh you know, if you want to be on by yourself sometime, Mark, too, to tell me all those stories, we can tell you some, we can talk history, or you can really delve into the book, whatever you want. Yeah, I would love that. That would be fantastic. I have lots to say. Okay. All right, Stephen. Thank all right, you. Mark. So with the Stephen Slate and Mark Sharon from St. Jude's Retreat with the new book coming out, The Freedom Model, I want to thank you so much for being with me tonight. Thank you so much, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Good Thanks, night, guys. Monica. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Good night, you. everybody. See you on Facebook land. <laughs> <laughs>